Good evening and welcome to Grace Downtown. My name is Jason, one of the pastors here, and we're so glad that you've chosen to worship with us tonight. Uh, as you just heard read by Andrew there, we are in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 for a few weeks. Uh, we thought it would be fitting to kick off the fall with talking about who we are as a church. Uh, it's kind of back to church time. Folks are new moving to town, and so we want to make sure that we are all on the same page about what God has called us to as a church. So we've selected 2 Corinthians 5, uh, verses 14 through 21, and each week we're taking a look at a different section and talking about who God is calling us to be and who God is making us into as a church. Um, this is not a departure from anything we've been talking about here or anything that we're going to talk about tonight, um, but it is kind of an introduction before the sermon. Uh, I'm going to invite uh, one of my friends up here. His name is is uh, one of our field staff members, and he serves in, he and his family in uh, northern Africa. And if you're not familiar with that term field staff here at Grace, what we call field staff are folks that uh, go out from our congregation that are trying to live out gospel truth, community, and mission, just as we are. You can grab that one there on the end. They're trying to live out gospel truth, community, and mission, just as we are, but overseas somewhere. Um, and when I say I want to invite my friend up here. I don't just say that to be nice. Uh, Ten years ago, we were in the same community group when he was in grad school, um, and uh, so he and our family go way back, and so it's been awesome to have him here. Got to spend some time with him yesterday, and we just want to spend some time uh, for you to get to know him and also get an update on uh, what and his family are doing. So first, but tell us who you are, introduce your family that is not here tonight, and tell us a little bit about what you guys are doing. So, yeah, I'm and I have two small boys, and they're five and three, and we are in, um, and the Lord has led us there through process, but we've started a business, and it's a CrossFit um, gym, and so... Yeah, we, we, uh, the, 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 the focus of our business is, is six-dimensional fitness, not just the physical, nutritional, but also emotional, mental, spiritual, social, and all the olds. Um, and, and we really try to push that forward with, from the very beginning. Uh, even the first class that we have, we have that with them, and we teach them about, hey, what does it mean to be spiritually healthy and emotionally healthy? And, um, and so that is what our vision for the business is, to be transformative. And um, we're currently, actually, I'm in the States without them for a reason, and that is because I have a crazy busy schedule and didn't want to drag them here. But our goal is to raise funds for a project that we're looking at, joining an actual local believer. Um, and I'm taking the down floor, bottom floor, and him the second floor. And so we're just really praying, is this the timing for this, and, and, and trying to raise support for that. Awesome. Uh, what, tonight in our sermon, we're talking about what is the cost of mission? What does it cost each one of us to be on mission, and what does it cost to follow Christ? What has it cost you and your family to follow Christ in the way you have, and what is uh, costing you right now? Yeah, so um, when I think about cost for us, I'm reminded of in, in Genesis 26, where um, Abraham had gone through and he made all these wells. And it's Isaac's turn. His, his son comes through. And what happened is after Abraham left the wells, the Philistines came and they filled him in. And 
uh, Isaac comes through one by one and he comes to a well. He starts digging out the well and people come and then they're like, what are you doing? And they start grumbling and complaining. And so instead of fighting him like he could have because he's a big, strong Isaac, he moves on and he moves on to the next well. Does the same thing. Goes, digs out the well, comes, people come and they start to grumble and complain. He does this several times and then he comes to, and he also names each one of those wells like quarreling and all these different names. He comes to a well, he digs it out. This time nobody comes. And what happens is he, he, nobody is, is, is against him and he has this like peace. And so what he does is he names the well broad places and room, room for you to work. And so basically I feel that way with our past six years. It has cost us a lot of time, energy, money, funds, to move from one rental space to the next. And it's just set up really bad there. Every year it's a 10% increase and, uh, in rent. And you just can't keep up as a business. So um, we want to get out of that cycle. And so the monetary cost is one thing, but also just the emotional. We, we just started renovating our third place. Uh, and we're closed now to renovate it. And so we would love to get out of that cycle. Um, into a, a, a piece of land that we could purchase. So. I'm going to set you up with this next question because I know your story. Um, I'm going to tee you up here. Uh, we have a lot of folks that are in transitionary periods of life here at Grace Downtown, a lot of folks in grad school. Um, I know your story, so I can look back at your grad school days and see how God was preparing you for what he had for you now. But why don't you share a little bit about how God prepared you to open up a CrossFit gym yeah. overseas? So... Like I grew up in Ohio. I was, grew up on a farm and came here to Iowa um, 2005. And I was here for five years. And the Lord really, I mean, I was an introvert, still am, introvert, kind of strange off the, yeah, I was a runner, marathon runner. And not, that's not strange, but just how I lived my life. He can testify. Um, a little bit awkward. So anyways, as the Lord took me through this process, I still maintain this strange, uh, awkward, I don't know how to describe it, but kind of, and as he did that, but the, he, he started showing me where I was strong, where I, as a man, could lead through, even though I was quiet and not exactly ex extroverted, and he, he brought me to small groups here at Grace, and I started to help and learn at small groups, and I took perspectives class, and then I was, there's this like crescendo to uh, TOAG, and TOAG is kind of this training ground for people that have a, a vision for the world. And um, my background is exercise physiology here, and I wanted to use that. And so the Lord actually took it away first, and then he brought it back. Uh, he took it away in my previous first country was Sudan, and I couldn't use it there. And then he brought it back. Uh, in, in so I think the Lord has really been this process of giving up laying it down, and then bringing it back to you a hundredfold. Hmm. So as I said, uh, field staff are a part of our church. We feel like they belong as part of our church community group with me 10 years ago. So as a, a part of this church, what would you encourage us with? What word would you have for us here at Grace? Um, yeah, I mean, I think that Grace has, a, has an awesome opportunity to, to think broad. And just like that um, story of Isaac who named the well, uh, broad places, I, I would encourage you to, to in your situation, in your, uh, 
in your group, in your oikos, to look outside of it and to look broader than even your life circumstances. I think, like as a man, but anybody, uh, you get involved in your work and your, in your, your, your situation and you forget that bigger circle, those other layers of the onion that he wants to, to expand. His kingdom and his purposes are humongous and we can't even imagine them unless we are open to think broadly. Uh, in just a minute, I'm going to ask all of us to huddle up for just a quick prayer. For share, how can we be praying for you and Denise and the boys and your business and what God has called you to? Um, three things you could pray for. First is my wife, my warrior, is home with the boys. And so that's a big responsibility. On top of that, we're renovating. And so I can't be there to help her. Um, on top of that, we've, we've just brought in two, two, two new tem team members, sorry. And so we're, you know, trying to encourage them. And I think there's just a lot of responsibility on her. So I want to pray for grace over her these two weeks. I'm gone. Uh, second thing is my, my son, Ivan, my oldest. He's five years old. He's going into KG, kindergarten. And he, you know, it's a challenge. He loves it. But, you know, he's learning. He's now fully exposed to Arabic fully exposed to six hours of sitting in that seat right there without moving. Mm. And these are hard things for a little boy to understand. So just praying as those things happen. This third thing you could pray for is just this project, that it would be God's project, that he would get the glory and not some American coming in and doing something wonderful, but that really it would be reflected to, to God to, to give him the glory. Awesome. Uh, can go on your ongoing prayer list, but I would like us to huddle up here just with the people closest to you if you feel comfortable. And one person in each little huddle, just say a quick 30-second prayer for God has called them to. So go ahead and do that. Thank you. Father, thank you for boys. Thank you that they are a part of our extended family here at Grace. God, thank you for how you have ordered their steps and you have brought them to the place that they are in. Uh, God, we pray that you would supply all that they need. We pray for Denise even right now that she would have restful sleep. She would have the energy that she needs to take care of her boys and the team they have there. Uh, God, we pray for financial provision that they would be able to buy land, to build a building, to have permanent space, uh, and really be a blessing and um, really be a blessing to the people there, but also um, bring honor and glory to the Father. God, we pray that you would open up our ears to what you would have for us tonight. We pray that you would speak through your word, that your spirit would speak to us, that we would be ready and willing to listen, and that you would do the work that you want to do in us tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. So we are in the midst of a season called Momentum. Uh, each fall, we do uh, a series called Momentum. Each year, we pray through as uh, leaders of grace, what would God have us in to intentionally look at? Because each fall, we want to look at what does it look like to be and make disciples? We want to be intentional about that. And we call it Momentum uh, because uh, we want it to be intentional. And what Momentum is, when you're talking about science and physics, it's mass moving in the same direction. It's mass and velocity. And it's implied that that is moving in the same direction. And we don't want to just be a bunch of people that meet in the same building. We want to be a group of people that is intentionally headed in the same direction together with velocity. Not our speed, 
but at the speed God would want his kingdom to advance in our hearts and in our world. Um, Every couple of weeks, we're having these commitment weeks where we're committing to four different areas of discipleship. And we are also taking a look at who we are as a church. And then starting in October, we'll be going through an eight-week series through the whole narrative of Scripture called The Story of God. Um, I'll talk about our week last week when we committed to share because you still have an opportunity to commit to that. And we will have our commitment to give next week uh, for us to reevaluate the commitments to giving we made last year or uh, to commit for the first time if we weren't here last fall with our financial giving. We want to make sure, though, during September uh, that we find something that connects us all as a church, that we would be a group of people that's headed in the same direction together. And the thing is, the great thing is, it takes a lot of pressure off of us as church leaders, as elders, as staff. We don't have to just come up with something. We don't have to find a rallying cry. We don't have to find uh, something that connects us as a church. Momentum is a, a thing to remind us of who God is and what he's doing amongst us. But we have something that connects us together. And that thing is his word. And what he has called us to in his word. And what he says about who he is and who we are in Christ. God's word is what connects us together. Scripture shows us what connects us, but Scripture also shows us what compels us. And that's what we're looking at here in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 tonight. We're going to look at what compels us, what motivates us towards being the kind of people that God wants us to be, what motivates us to follow Christ, what motivates us to be people of gospel truth, community, and mission. What motivates your behavior? That's what I want us to start out by thinking about here tonight. What motivates your behavior? Many things can motivate our behavior for a short amount of time. When we think about it, many different things, even superficial things, can motivate our behavior for a short amount of time. I have this funny relationship with the sport of football. When it's not football season, I'm kind of indifferent about football. I'm like, yeah, football. I don't need to follow football in the off season. I don't need to like listen to recruiting podcasts about Hawkeyes that are coming in. And I don't need to follow my pro football team. The draft is kind of interesting in April. But even in the off season, I'm like, ah, oh, there's ethical questions about football and there's the concussion thing. Ah, maybe I'm not going to watch football this year. And then the first game comes and I'm like all in. My son will tell you he was watching the AFC championship game last year when uh, I thought the Chiefs had made it to the Super Bowl, but there was some crazy things that happened because it's the Patriots, and so the Chiefs didn't make it to the Super Bowl. But I thought for about 30 seconds that the Chiefs had made it to the Super Bowl for the first time in my lifetime. And I was jumping up and down as high as I could, going crazy. And I look over, and my nine-year-old is staring at me like, ah. Like, what is wrong with you? And then he just starts laughing like, oh my gosh, why are you so excited? And then the next morning, the other kids got up and he's like, guys, you should have seen dad last night. He was going crazy. And they were like, oh, did the Chiefs make the Super Bowl? And he's like, no. He, <laughs> he thought I'd lost my mind over football. Things like football, things like a good cup of coffee, just little daily pleasures in life, superficial things. They can motivate our behavior for a short time. But what motivates your behavior over the long run? What, what motivates your behavior 
in difficult things, hard things? What motivates you to change something about yourself? What motivates you to break a bad habit or even an addiction that you find yourself in the middle of? What motivates you to do something that you know God is asking you to do, but you know you can't do it? What motivates your behavior? What leads to lasting change? That's what this passage is all about. As we've been taking a look at this passage, we've been looking at what God has called us to. We've looked at how we are called a new creation in Christ. We have looked at how we are ambassadors, representatives of him. We have looked at how we have both a ministry, actions, demonstration of love. We have a ministry of reconciliation. And then we have a message, what we proclaim with our words. We have a message of reconciliation. We've been looking at what God calls us when we are in Christ. Well, in this passage, we are looking at what motivates us to be an ambassador. What motivates us to be a a messenger of reconciliation and to have a ministry of reconciliation? So, Look with me at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14. The verses will be up here on the screen as well. If you'd like to have a copy of God's word in front of you, you can grab one on the windowsill uh, right on the outside aisles there. So 2 Corinthians 5, 14. For the love of Christ controls us. That's the big idea for this section. The love of of Christ controls us. Think of a person that you know that is very compelled or controlled by something that they're interested in. It can be something that's really important or it can be something that you deem not so important. Think about the person that everything they talk about, everything they post online is driven by politics. Think of the person that it seems like every waking moment they are thinking about their schooling, their education, or their job, their pursuit, the the business that they're starting up, their big idea that they they spend all their time thinking about. Or perhaps perhaps it's something more superficial like a movie or a sports team that seems to drive their behavior. As I said earlier, I have kind of an interesting uh, relationship with football. I'm not the only one. What would compel a person to root for the Minnesota Vikings? No, sorry. Um, What would compel, uh, what would compel a person to dress up like a maniac? I'm watching the Chiefs game. Okay, I'm from Kansas City. There were maniacs in Kansas City today too, how they dressed for, to support their team. What would compel a grown man to dress like a Viking with face paint and chain mail included, and then get a, get a tattoo on his bicep underneath? What would compel a grown man to do such a thing? Or perhaps you know, uh, like, fantasy book game movie person that gets so wrapped up in a game or a fantasy movie or book that they start dressing like and going to conventions for said fantasy thing. There's actually a great example of this right out on our new patio right out here. So when Old Brick, we rent space from Old Brick, and they put a new patio in out here, and you could pay money as a fundraiser to get your name or whatever you wanted engraved on the bricks out front. This is what someone chose to spend their money on and engrave on the brick. 
This is from Harry Potter, if you're unfamiliar. Um, I fully expected a few of you to run out and try to find this brick. Um, you can do that afterwards on your own time. But someone paid money to put a brick and not put their name on it, not their child's name on it or their organization, but a character from a book or movie that they love. We are compelled, we are controlled by a number of things. Paul, the writer of Corinthians here, is saying, for the love of Christ controls us. Now, if you look up this word control in other translations, in the different English translations of the Bible, you'll see it's almost translated different in every single translation. You will find controlled by God's love, by the love of Christ. You'll find constrained. You'll find compelled. You'll find lots of different words in every translation for this word control. And there's a reason for that. Greek, which the New Testament was written in, has a word that says both, that means both control, constrain, and compel. One word that has a large semantic range that we don't have an English word for. The, the word picture for it is Christ's love lays a claim on us. Christ's love comes around us from both sides and both constrains us from going one way and compels us to go in another way, thereby controlling our actions. There's no English word for that sentence. But that's what the Greek word is communicating to us. That God's love comes alongside of us before and behind, controls our behavior, constrains us from other behaviors, and compels us towards other behaviors. Christ's love controls us or lays a claim on us or holds us together. This same kind of word picture is used three times in the Old Testament. And interestingly, it's all about words spoken, talking about God's love or God's law, uh, constraining the way we speak. Um, I put them up here on the, that's the wrong way. We don't need to see that guy anymore. Um, in Job 32 verse 18, Job says, For I am full of words, but the Spirit within me constrains me. In Jeremiah 20, verse 9, if I say I will not mention him or speak any more in his name, there is in my heart, as it were, a burning fire shut up in my bones, and I am weary with holding it in, and I cannot. Jeremiah is talking about God giving him a word, and he cannot constrain those words from coming out. In the book of Amos, chapter 3, verse 8, the lion has roared, who will not fear? The Lord has spoken, but who, who can but prophesy? Meaning, if the Lord has spoken to me, if the Lord has spoken to us, how can I not speak what he has said? Christ's love controls us. Now Paul is going to spend the next three verses talking about what that looks like, and we'll talk more about it as we go on here. So the second half of verse 14, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. First, I'd like us to focus in on that word concluded, concluded. There is much to conclude 
about the love that Christ has for us. There is much to think about when we think about the love that Christ has for us. We will spend the rest of our earthly lives and the rest of all of eternity thinking about the love which Christ has for us. When we're confronted with the glory of the Father in heaven, we will think about how much Christ must love us. There is much to conclude about how and why Christ has loved us. There's much to think about. There's much to sing about. There's much to learn about the love that Christ has for us. And the more we think about it, the more it starts to control, constrain, compel our lives. And the second part of this section, that one has died for all and therefore all have died. That one that has died for all is Christ. It's clear in this passage that that's talking about Christ. And therefore, all have died. This is part of being in Christ. That's what we read in verse 17 in this same passage. That is part of what it means to be hidden in Christ that we talked about in week one in Colossians chapter three. Part of being in Christ, hidden in Christ, is dying with Christ. If we are in Christ and he died, that means we have died to ourself. When we are baptized, when we go under the water and come back up, it is symbolizing our old self has been put to death and we have raised to life in Christ. Verse 15. And he, meaning Christ, died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Because Christ has died for us, we no longer live for ourselves. This is, Christ dying for us is not only a model for us to follow, but it is a model for us to follow. We can't just live our lives trying to do what Jesus did because we'll always fall short of that. But Paul is saying here that Christ's death and him dying for our sake, it is an example for us. It is that, that we too must die to self as he first died for us. I think I've shared this story before, but uh, the first job I had was sacking groceries at this um, grocery store that was very much like fairways around here, meaning I had to wear a tie and take people's groceries out. Uh, But one thing that was different is the guy that owned the building, it was called John's Apple Market, and John, the owner, was there every day. He worked the same shift I did. And um, we had to take people's groceries out no matter what the weather was like, rain, sleet, snow, whatever. Um, But which was hard, not fun to do. But the amazing thing is if we got busy, John would come down from the customer service booth and he would, in his short sleeves, he's a big dude, in the sleet, in the cold, in January, he would sack up people's groceries and he would carry them out to the car. It was much easier to go out in the cold and carry someone's groceries because I saw the owner of the building carrying out the groceries too. How much more has Christ done for us? How much more of an example has he first set for us with him lovingly laying down his life? See, John, his name was on the sign. He deserved to not have to take groceries out. How much more does Christ, God himself, how much more does he deserve to come and be worshipped, but instead he came and laid down his life for us? 
We've concluded that he died for all, that those who live may no longer live for themselves. When we come up out of those waters of baptism, we're saying, I no longer live for myself. I no longer live for my purposes. The flesh no longer controls and compels me. But it's the death of Christ that controls, that compels. Verse 16. From now on, therefore... So this is an important little preposition here. From now on, therefore, because of what Christ has done for us, I'm going to stop and I'm going to think about what Christ has done and I'm going to change my behavior in light of it. That's what Paul is talking about here. And what is he saying we should do in light of what Christ has done for us? We regard no one according to the flesh. We regard no one according to the flesh What does it look like to regard someone according to the flesh? What does it look like to regard someone according to the flesh? It means looking at them and seeing only what the eye can see. It means looking at them and seeing what our fleshly eyes see and not seeing the heart, not seeing the emotions, not seeing with compassion what someone is really going through. Regarding someone according to the flesh means that we are constantly jockeying for position and we are constantly seeing people in light of how we can use them to get what we want. Sometimes it's subtle, sometimes it's more overt, but when we, when we regard someone according to the flesh, we regard them in a way where we want to use them or even objectify them to get what we want. What does it look like to regard someone according to the flesh? It means having implicit bias. Biases towards certain individual based on their skin color, based on their country of origin, based on their socioeconomic status. Biases that we're not even aware of. That's what it means to regard someone according to the flesh. Often we see some people as either something we can use to get what we want or an obstacle in the way of what we want. This is what it looks like to regard someone according to the flesh. It means seeing other people only as a sinner and never as a sufferer. But when the love of Christ controls us, we start seeing people according to the love of Christ. Because remember, Christ's love is compelling, constraining, controlling our thoughts and the way we see people. So now the love of Christ is determining how we view people. And it changes our orientation in how we see them. Now we may see them as a sinner, but we also see them as a sufferer just like us. Because what are you? What am I? We are sinners and we are sufferers. And we are caught up in this world. We'll talk about this in the Story of God series when we talk about rebellion. But because of sin, because of the fall, because of the broken world and the systems that we live in, we sin and we suffer. And we get caught up in this cycle where we're caught up in a cycle of our own sin, sin against us, sinful structures in society, and then we're suffering because of all this sin. When we regard people according to the Spirit instead of just according to the flesh, we start seeing them as a sinner and a sufferer just like us. And it is amazing what happens when you start viewing someone as a sufferer instead of just a sinner. 
you much more easily sympathize with them. You much more easily come alongside of them. You much more easily say, how can I help instead of you shouldn't have done that? Or if you would have done this differently, you wouldn't be where you are today. We regard no one according to the flesh. That's what it looks like when the love of Christ is controlling, compelling us. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. If you're taking notes, this would be a good thing to write down. I didn't put it up on the screen. But what Paul is saying here is the way we regard Christ has changed. If we are in Christ, the way we regard Christ has changed. So the way we regard others has changed as well. If we do not view Christ according to the flesh any longer, then we don't view others according to the flesh. Before we are in Christ, we tend to view Christ the same way as people that lived in the day of Christ viewed Christ. They viewed him as a threat to what they wanted. When we view Christ only in the flesh, we view him as something we can use to get what we want or something that can be disregarded altogether. But when we start, the Spirit moves in our life and we see Christ for who he is, when we are in Christ, when the death, burial, resurrection of Christ is appropriated to us, when verse 521 of 2 Corinthians takes place, when that takes place, something amazing happens. And we no longer view Christ according to the flesh and then we don't view others according to the flesh Paul is tying together here how we view Christ and how we view others. Paul is doing a number of things here, but one of the biggest things that he is doing is tying together what Christ has done for us and how we live our lives, how we behave, how we treat others. He's tying what Christ has done for us with how we treat one another. If you are in Christ, that means you will display the fruits of his spirit. If you are controlled, compelled, constrained by the love of Christ, the, the fruits of the spirit will be displayed in your life because Christ is controlling your actions, because the spirit of the living God is controlling your actions instead of just living according to the flesh. Specifically here, Paul is saying, if you have concluded that Christ died for you, then you must treat others in a new way. There are many motivations for how we can treat others. But all of them are according to the flesh, except for Christ's love compelling us, constraining us, controlling us to love others. The only motivation to treat others the way we want to be treated, the golden rule we t teach our kids, but it's easier said than done, right? The only way we love others the way we want to be loved, the only way that we love according to the Spirit instead of according to the flesh, the only way is remembering that Christ, who deserved all, gave all for them and for me. Christ, who deserved all, gave all for me and for the person that I'm trying to love. Let's look at what the life lived in Christ looks like. Let's look at now the fruit of a life where Christ's love is compelling and controlling us. First thing, how does Christ's love lay claim to us? It gives us a new 
authority. We don't necessarily right off the bat love that word, authority. Rules, authority, boss, master. We don't love those words. It can be seen as a negative thing to us. And there's a lot of reasons for that that we don't have time to get into. But the long and the short of it is we've had some crummy authorities in our life. But if you have an authority, if you have a master, if you have a boss, your life and the conditions of your life are affected by how good of an authority they are. A lot of the struggles that we struggle with in our life is because of the the bad authorities that we have had in our life. But if Christ's love is controlling us, compelling us, if we are in Christ, we have a new authority in our life. We have a new master. We have a new Lord in our life. And it's the God of the universe who has sent his only son to die for us. So it's actually good news that we have a new authority. It's actually good news that we have something determining our actions. It's actually good news that the love of Christ is what's constraining us. It's not always a good thing to be constrained by something, but if it's the love of Christ, that's the best thing that can constrain us. That's the best thing that can motivate our behavior, our actions, the way we treat other people. Vaughn Roberts, who is a a rector of Oxford over in England, he writes, to be under God's rule is to enjoy his blessing. To be under God's rule is to enjoy his blessing. So in Matthew chapter 16, when Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but for whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Christ says, stop letting all those other things control you and let my love control you. Lay down those things that seem like life, but they're not really life. And take up my cross. Take up my love. Let my love compel you instead of all those other things. Number two. We become others-oriented. We become others-oriented when Christ's love controls us. You, me, our kids, everyone we see around us, we are either driven by narcissism, love of self, self self-centeredness, however you want to describe it, or the love of Christ. We are either compelled by what is best for us, or we are compelled by Christ's love. Again, for a short time, other things can compel us, but at the end of the day, even our acts of service towards other people are often very self-seeking. So it is either the love, the comfort, the advancement of self, or Christ's love that is compelling us, that is constraining us. But when Christ's love does constrain us, we become others-oriented. This week, um, I got up in the morning, and before my toast had even popped up or before the coffee had even brewed, that's how I know it was the Spirit because it was before those things, um, God's Spirit just very clearly spoke to me. And this wasn't for the sermon. It happens to fit in the sermon, but this is just a word that the Lord needed to say to me. He said, you have no shot at being humble before others if you're not humble before me. I struggle to be humble before others at times, and I'm sure you do too if you're honest. The Spirit of God just 
clearly impressed upon me. You will never be humble before others if you are not humble before me. When we humble ourselves before him, when we humble ourselves before his love, his love controls us, constrains us. It compels us. Next, we have the power to reconcile. We have the power to reconcile. We live in a world of broken relationships. We live in a world of broken relationships, and that can be big, like uh, divorce and abandonment and um, estrangement. Those can be big things, but there's micro reconciliation that needs to happen that is not in our world. We just kind of like move on with life and we pretend like things don't happen and we just grow bitter below the surface and don't really deal with things. And I'm not just talking about the big bad world out there. I'm talking about in us, in our families, in our homes, in our marriages, in our church, in our community. There's a lot of things unreconciled probably not even big enough that anyone else knows about it. But we don't reconcile well. If the love of Christ is controlling us, we will reconcile because we have the power to reconcile. The power to really understand the depth of our sin. The power to confess, to repent, to forgive. It's right there in the gospel. We don't take advantage of it. So we're left with way too many unreconciled relationships. Lastly, when Christ's love compels us, we shine a light into the darkness. We shine a light into the darkness. Imagine the life that I'm describing right now that is controlled by the love of Christ, that humbly serves others and does not view them according to the flesh because of what Christ has done for us, reconciles with other people, has a new authority in their life. Imagine living that way and then imagine what it will look like in our world. It will be a shining city on a hill that cannot be hidden. So as we take a look at who we are as a church and we add all these things up, the thing that's going to keep us from doing what God has called us to do as a church, from being and making disciples for the glory of God, the thing that's going to keep us from doing that is not outside somewhere in the culture. It's not coming up with the right slogan each fall for momentum. It's found right in here. What is controlling, constraining, compelling our behavior? Is it what Christ has done for us? Or is it our own self-centeredness? What is going to compel us to move forward? If the love of Christ is not controlling us, we will never be the people of God. We'll just be people that go to church. And I know you, and I know you want more than that. I know you want to be God's people and to be God's church. And I want to thank you for giving up everything you have to be that already. So many of you have considered the cost and laid down other things in order to take up the cross of of Christ and follow him. And I want to say thank you. If you just take a look at pulling the service off every Sunday night, it takes 30 people. And there's people that are on five, six volunteer teams and are 
serving every single week. Thank you for serving even when no one applauds. There are so many relationship things that are going on in this church that are so important, that are not a program of this church you're never going to hear about, but it's just people ministering to other people with message and with ministry, with words and with deeds. And I want to say thank you for serving each other so well. There are small and big sacrifices that you are making with your time, your talent, your treasure, your stuff for other people that will never be recognized, will never find its way into a bulletin, will never be talked about here on stage. I want to thank you for giving your life, letting Christ's love control you. And I want to just encourage us to continue to seek out what does it look like for Christ's love to control us as we move forward in the future. I can't tell you exactly what God has for you. We don't even know the future of us being in this building after 18 months from now. I don't know that all God has in store for us, but I can tell you this, if Christ's love controls us, we'll be on the right track. If Christ's love is compelling us, we will be on the right track. So what does it look like for you as an individual, for you as a household, for you as a community group, for us as the collective people of God to let Christ's love compel us into the future? It is going to cost us everything, but we are going to gain our souls. We are going to gain a life that honors God. We are going to see and believe in the love that Christ has for us. And it's worth setting everything else aside for that. We are going to conclude tonight in a fitting way of singing about what Christ has done for us. The band's going to come forward and lead us in, in one more song where we will sing about what God has done sing about who Christ is and what he has done for us. Would you stand with me? Let's sing about what Christ has done. Let's conclude what Christ has done for us. Let's think about what he has done for us. And let's let more of our lives, more of our relationships, more parts of our hearts be controlled by his love. Let's sing together now.